Okay, so when I was outlining this, I happened to read a news article and it was about a guy named Drake. Who's heard of Drake? Okay. I thought Drake was a male duck, but apparently he's a singer. So Drake sang this song called God's Plan. And the reason why I'm reading an article about him is he decided that he's going to trademark the phrase God's plan. Did you guys see that? I'm like, what? How do you trademark a phrase like God's plan? So does that mean every time I say God's plan, I have to pay like Drake a dollar or something? I mean, how in the world is this gonna work? And part of the article said this, the reason why he wants to trademark it is because he's gonna have a game show called God's plan. Like, what? Isn't that called life? Isn't that, all right? Like, it's crazy, all right? Anyways, Acts 26. We find God, Jesus, speaking to Paul and telling Paul, here's my plan for you. So in Acts 26, we get God's plan for Paul. And it's brilliant, not only what Paul is going to do, but also how it applies to us because what God says, Jesus says to Paul, is exactly what happens to you and me and what we get to tell people about as well. So let me read and then we'll talk. Acts 26, verse 12. If you don't know Acts, we're in the part where this guy named Paul, very important guy, is put in prison and time after time he is given his testimony and saying what happened to him to very important people. In Acts 26, it's King Agrippa, the king of Israel. He's telling him about his conversion story. So in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At this point, he does not love Jesus. He hates Jesus and hates Christians. He's been persecuting them in Jerusalem. He's franchising now his persecution to another city called Damascus. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun. That's bright. That shone round me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting but rise and stand upon your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. God's plan. Paul, I'm gonna grab you. And I'm gonna change you. And I'm gonna send you out to these people called the Gentiles. And this is what you're going to do. It's four things. And these four things are what is supposed to happen to you and me as well when we believe in Jesus. And they're brilliant. Number one, to open their eyes 
so they may turn from darkness to light. As a believer, our eyes are supposed to be opened. And I think when I think about blindness, I think there's two kinds of blindness. There's willful blindness. People who just shut your eyes to things. So remember a child when a child is being told something that they don't want to hear, what do they do? Fingers in the ears, nah, 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 right? It's a refusal to hear something they don't wanna hear. There are people that are willfully blind. I will talk with them. They'll have some objection to the faith, science, physical, whatever it is. And so I'll sit and I will deal with their issues apologetically, giving them answers. At the end of the conversation, I answered all their objections and I'll say, so what's the deal? And they'll say, you know, I don't really care. I just wanna keep doing what I'm doing. Okay, I wanna sleep around. I wanna party. I wanna be whatever it is. At that point, I just have to know there's nothing more I can do. They are willfully blind. They want to shut their eyes to these things. And my prayer is, I hope the world doesn't slap them down too hard because it's coming, right? That's willful blindness. Nothing you can do. But there's another kind of blindness. It's a blindness that we don't even know exists. So psychologists call it this. It's, it's the way we see ourselves versus the way the rest of the world sees us. And it's called self-enhancement bias. I'll give you an illustration of this. It's from my son, Elijah, about five years ago. So Elijah is being spoken to by Kerry Alderson. He's our high school pastor, also a giant Oregon Duck fan. So he comes up to Elijah and says to Elijah, he says, hey, you wanna see one of the fastest men in college football? And Elijah said, sure. So he showed him a picture of DeAnthony Thomas. Remember him? Super fast, like a 4-2-40, like lightning fast, Anthony Thomas. So Elijah looks at the picture and says, yeah, but is he as fast as me? <laughs> and so Carrie had to let him down. He goes, yeah, maybe a little bit. And Elijah said, well, doesn't matter. He's still a duck. I went, yeah, indoctrinated, man. <laughs> That's self-enhancement bias. It's, you know, is he as fast as me? It's very, very, very common. There's a guy from Cornell. His name is David Dunning. He's a professor. And he's done all this research on how people don't realize how stupid they are. So he has this article called Unskilled and Unaware of It. And it just goes over and over these people that you just can't believe the things they're doing and then the reason behind what they're doing, you're like, that's just ridiculous. Well, it's unskilled and unaware of it. Michelin Tire did a survey where they found that 74% of people say they've been tailgated, but only 11% said they have ever tailgated someone. <laughs> Those two numbers can't work, right? They just, some, someone, right? That's the same thing. It's these blind spots. It's the first round of every talent show right? Nobody told you you can't sing or dance, but this guy will tell you. You thought you were better than you were, okay? Well, the Bible says, not just outside, there's actually a power behind blindness. So in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says this, the God of this world has blinded their eyes. 
that there is a spiritual blindness that happens to people that they're not even aware of it, but it's happening because of the enemy of our faith who blinds us. And that's why you can talk to people that are involved in addiction and you can try to help them and try to open their eyes, but they cannot see it. It's why I'll talk to people about how to live life and they'll say, those rules don't apply to me. What? How can you even say that? Or here's a big one, greed. The Bible says more about greed than any other sin. But you know this? I've had people confess every crazy sin in the world to me, dark, evil stuff. I have never unprodded had anyone come to me and say, Matt, I'm greedy. The reason? There's always somebody richer than you. There's always somebody doing better than you. So we never have greed. Why? It's this blind spot in our life, right? So here's what God says to Paul. Paul, you're going to be one that goes around opening people's eyes to their blindness. Well, Matt, how does that help me? What do I do? Here's what I think you and I should be actively doing as believers. Two things. Number one, we should be finding Paul's. People that are a little bit older than us, that have had an Acts 9 experience where their eyes were shut and then their eyes were opened and they realize it and then we listen to them. We are the first civilization in history that's taken our elders, and I mean that male and female, older people, and we've said that they're morons. They can't operate an iPhone, so they must be an idiot, right? That's essentially where we're at now as, as a people. We warehouse them, we, we put them away. Every other generation and every other civilization has always listened to their elders and tried to glean from them because they realize we got blind spots. And maybe this dude that's 70 can help me because he's been through it. My suggestion is this, find a Paul or a Pauline, someone that's older than you, that you trust and ask him this question. What are some stupid things I'm doing right now? And then keep your mouth shut and listen to what they say. And that's it. And say, thank you when they're done. And trust, maybe just maybe, they're hitting on my blind spot. Second thing to do is this. I did a wedding for a guy a bunch of years ago. His name was John Bergen. He's passed away since then. If you knew John Bergen, he was awesome. Missionary in, there's someone knows him, in Africa for 40 years. Like brilliant things happen, incredible. He comes back here. He is the guy that writes the letters for people who write into J. Vernon McGee. So if you knew J. Vernon McGee and listened to him, stallion, right? When, if you wrote a letter to J. Vernon McGee when John Bergen was there, he would have answered that letter. That's how much J. Vernon McGee trusted John Bergen. Brilliant man, right? So I do his wedding to Pam when he's like 90 years old. I felt like Doogie Howser. I'm like, oh my goodness, right? It was so strange. But in chatting with him and getting to know him, here's what he told me. I've never forgot it. He said, Matt, every day, here's what I pray. This is a 90-year-old man who has been on the mission field, who just a stallion. Every day I pray this. I pray Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Lord, search my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me on the path everlasting. John Bergen, stallion missionary, amazing man is saying, there might be something that's starting to germinate in my heart that's gonna grow crooked in me and I want God to show it to me, open my eyes to it before it begins to break me. 
How brilliant is that? That's what we do. Find some Pauls or Paulines and you pray that prayer. So open eyes. Why? So they can move from the dark to the light. Isn't darkness scary? Isn't it? Yeah. Like things happen in the darkness that if they happen anywhere else, you would not be afraid. Correct? I'll give you an example. A bunch of years ago, we had these cougar signs around our house. And so I'd walk down to my father-in-law's house and it was, you know, a dark, dark day. And then I'm walking back and I have my two older daughters at that time, Carissa and Bella. And we're walking and um, we finally get up close to our house, pitch black is a quarter mile walk. And we're up there and I'm kind of happy that they're clinging to me. I'm like, yeah, right on, all right, this is fun. And then something just a foot or two in front of me erupts. And there was so much screaming, mostly from me. <laughs> Guess what it was? A rabbit. <laughs> I have never in the daylight been like, ah, rabbit, run. But at night, man, it's scary. I think some believers live lives of fear and worry and anxiety because you're living in too much darkness. And when you live in darkness, things that should not scare you as a believer now petrify you. And so Jesus tells Paul, you're gonna invite people out of dark, scary, frightening, worrisome lives to live in the light, to live in light. Brilliant. Number two, from the power of Satan to God. I almost did the whole message on that one little phrase. I could camp on this. I'll try not to. Here's what I find funny. There's been this survey that's been going on for decades. Do you believe in God? Do you believe in Satan? And so there's this monitoring of, of Americans, not just believers, Americans' belief in God and Satan. Belief in Satan re reached a a low point in about 1990, just way down. Minority of people believed in Satan. Ah, there's no devil, come on. Ever since 1990, every survey since then, there's been an increase in the belief in Satan. Now, why is that? I think we, we've seen evil. 9-11, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Bashar al-Assad, what he's doing in Syria right now, gassing his own people, North Korea, Boko Haram. We've seen such evil, like, oh my goodness. Maybe there is a power behind this kind of stuff, right? So here's what the text says. From to, what does that mean? I moved from Grant's Pass to Corvallis, right? I existed here. Now I exist here. I got married. I moved from singleness to eternal marital bliss. Don't laugh if you're with your spouse. <laughs> right? It's you had a place, an existence over here and something's happened and now you're in a different spot. I belabor that. Because the Bible, Colossians 1.13 especially, says that there are two kingdoms and that's it. There's a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light, a kingdom of evil and a kingdom of love. That's it. And you and I are going to exist 
in one of those kingdoms, period. You're either gonna live in the kingdom of darkness under the power of that king, or you'll be transferred, Colossians 1.13, into the kingdom of light under King Jesus. But you're gonna exist in one of the kings. That's the way life is. And when you're born, the Bible says this, when you're born, Romans chapter five, you are automatically enrolled in the kingdom of darkness. Anyone who has had kids knows this to be true, right? (laughs) They have citizenship in the kingdom of darkness. Like a one-year-old, when they get mad, they're so amazingly mad. If they were bigger and stronger, they would murder you. They would, they just can't, they're too weak, okay? So I'll give this illustration and I'll try to keep it without letting you know who it is. This certain child, um, growing up, this child would do something that Charity, my wife and I, called the face rake. So when this child got mad for some reason, this child would take your face and with this child's hands, and this is hard, just scratch you on your face, grabbing lips and eyelids and nose and just did not matter. Okay, where did this child learn that? Right? When Charity gets the remote before me, am I like, ah, you? No, I don't know, man. We never react that way to each other. I mean, it's great. Where do you learn it? Kingdom of darkness. There's born into it. There's something bent in a child that says, if I don't get my way, someone's gonna pay, right? That's what a child does because they're automatically enrolled in that kingdom, okay? And it takes eyes being opened to move out of it. It takes that. Oh, come on, Matt, really? I'm an unbeliever here. I just ended up here. I thought there was a party or something. (laughs) So you're telling me that I'm under the power of Satan right now? That I'm in the kingdom of darkness? You seem like a reasonably intelligent dude. Yes, I'm telling you that. And if you don't believe me, um, I can recommend a book for you. It's called The People of the Lie. It's by M. Scott Peck, a clinical psychologist. And the book is essentially, the premise is this. The reason why we misdiagnose so much of what we do is because we don't believe in evil. And when we don't believe in evil, then we're not getting to the root of the problem and we misdiagnose all the time. It's a brilliant, brilliant book from a guy who was in that field, right? Very smart dude, very smart guy. But I only have to take that book When I talk with people and they don't believe in Satan, I'll say this. Okay, have you ever been driving down the road and you're driving down the road and the most wicked, immoral thought in the world just comes into your brain? You're like, what in the world? Where is that from? Kingdom of darkness. Have you ever looked at a person and just thought wicked, immoral things about them? Have you ever reflected on your past and been like, I could have been even more wicked and immoral in my past? Why in the world did you do that? Because the kingdom of darkness leaves a stain on your brain. It bends you and it warps you. And we all belonged to it at some point. And I would say this, it's not just the bad stuff, it's also the good stuff. Like even the good stuff is tainted by bad. And I stole this from Jonathan Edwards. You can get that book if you want to, The Nature of True Virtue, super hard to read. Here's what he says. Even the good things that are done are often done for bad reasons. And he gives this illustration telling the truth. Do we tell the truth because it's this incredible moral value that we hold dear to our hearts and we know that like 
relationships and business, nothing can function without truth. Is that why we tell the truth? Or is it because of fear and pride? I think we tell the truth a lot because of fear. When you fill out your IRS form, are you telling the truth on that form? Because you're like, this is, a, this is required for our country to work correctly. I want to give the government all the money that they need. Anyone? Or are you filling out because you're afraid of a federal penitentiary? Yeah, right? If the IRS said this year, hey, from now on, we will not audit, we will not review, we will trust you. Is that gonna change your IRS? I owed 50 grand, but now somehow I'm getting a rebate. It's awesome. Yeah, it's fear. Or some people, they tell the truth because of pride. Like, I'm not one of those wicked, immoral liars. I'm better than them. Which is one of the most dangerous spots in the world. Because that's the kind of person that when they do something wrong, they're surprised at their own sinfulness. I can't believe I did that. Whoa. I hit someone on the side of the road and I left the scene and he died. I, I didn't know that was even in me. It was, it just took the right circumstances to bring it out. Careful, there is an evil, there is a power and it prevents you and me from becoming what we're supposed to become. So what Paul is being told is this, you have the good news to tell people they can have eyes opened, they can move their citizenship from dark to light. Now, how does that all happen? I think it's about the next two things he's told to do. First, because of forgiveness of sins. You're gonna tell them that their sins are forgiven. Do you know how much time a human being spends thinking about the past? Mistakes, should have done it differently. Harvard has a new um, survey out and they put the number at, well, daydreaming at 46%. So we Americans daydream 46% of the time. Is that crazy? I'm like, that's half your waking hours, daydreaming. And they say a great majority of that daydreaming is past. Oh, I blew it here. Oh, I made a mistake here. Oh, bummer. Terrible. Because it pollutes what you could do right now. So Wednesday night, if you're with us, we looked at Paul. A new governor comes in. He talks to the leaders in Jerusalem. And he's there, he's introducing himself. I'm the new governor. And so they should have a list of things. Hey, as new governor, we want you to do these things. They asked the governor to do one thing. You know what it is? Kill Paul. Two years have gone by, kill Paul. They hated him so much that it elevated this minorly important thing to be number one. Not, hey, we're in a famine right now. Help us with bread. Hey, we could use some free trade agreements. Hey, not, it's kill Paul. That's what hatred does. You know that? Hatred takes things that should not be important and then just makes them the most important thing in your life and ruins you. Hatred ruins you. Have you ever spent a day just hating on somebody or hating something? At the end of the day, how do you feel? You're like, man, I feel so good. I got such peace in my heart right now. This is awesome. No, hate leads to more hate. The only way you get rid of hate is by doing what Jesus said in Matthew chapter five, verse 44. Love your enemies. Only love gets rid of hate. But the, these emotions, thinking on the past about this person, whatever it is, man, it just, it destroys you. It destroys you. So here's what 
Paul is able to tell people, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. Don't let the past be the obstacle that ruins your future. You can be forgiven. David put it like this. Psalm 32, verse one. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. The word blessed just means happy. You're happy. You're not filled with hate. You're, you're happy. Oh, but Matt, I've been super, super bad. David wrote that after he committed adultery, got her pregnant and killed her husband. All right, are you worse than that? If you are, we're calling the cops on you, okay? That's simple. <laughs> That's the guy that's saying, oh my goodness, I'm forgiven. I've been forgiven. Do you know you're forgiven? You don't have to replay the tape over and over. You're forgiven. Isaiah put it like this. It's Isaiah 118. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins were like scarlet, you made a bloody mess of life. You're gonna be whiter than snow. Why? Because you're forgiven. Or one of my favorites is Lamentations 3.23. God, your mercies are new every morning. If, I'm, if I was God, and be glad I'm not, I wouldn't have said that. I would have said this. Hey, you get brand new mercies January 1st. And that's it. And there are plenty of people that use up all those mercies by 12, 10 a.m. on New Year's Eve, right? They're done. Okay, too bad. You made your bed sleeping in it. God doesn't. What God says is this. Every time you see the sun come up, you can forget about yesterday and live today. I'm setting up a system that allows you to not be polluted by your past, to not have it be an obstacle to you. I'm gonna set up a system that every single morning you wake up and you got a brand new start every single morning. That is forgiveness. I tell people when I baptize them, Romans chapter six, today you die. You die today. The old you is washed away and you're resurrected into newness of life. And here's what that means for you. It's how you get away from the power of Satan because he wants to tempt us with sin. And then when we fail, he comes and bashes us with that sin. You're such a terrible Christian. Look what you did, right? I said, today, here's what happens. When Satan comes and knocks on your door and reminds you of past sins or stuff you used to do, you know what you tell him? Wrong address. The address of that Matt Heverly is the graveyard on Pinecrest. This is a brand new Matt Heverly. And I don't do that anymore. And that's not who I am anymore. It's a way of appropriating this power of God. That's not who I am. I've been set free. I am forgiven. Have you ever experienced forgiveness like that? I will take people sometimes in counseling who are just overwhelmed by past sin. And I'll say this to them, as a priest of King Jesus, which every single believer in Jesus is, 1 Peter chapter two, we are a kingdom of priests, the priesthood of believers. We're all priests of King Jesus. I will look at them and say, as a priest of King Jesus, your sins are forgiven. And I've had people start weeping. The power of knowing I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. Paul, you're going to tell people they're forgiven. And then secondly, a place 
among those who are sanctified by faith. The word sanctified, it's simply this, set apart for God. Stuff that it's only God gets in. They belong to God. You have a place of belonging as a individual who is set apart for God, period. You belong to God. You know how important belonging is? Yeah. Will it hold? One more month, that's all we're asking. (laughs) Do you know you belong to God? You belong to him. And belonging is so important. College football is starting, right? What do people say? That's my team. Wear the jersey, that's my team. I always tell them, just because you have the jersey doesn't mean you're drafted. (laughs) But we want to belong. We have this need to be like, I'm part of this thing. And when they win, I win. I'm part of it, it's my team. The Bible says this, Galatians 6, 4. You were adopted by Jesus Christ. Romans chapter eight, verse 15, adopted. Ephesians chapter two, you're a part of his household. You are part of his family. You belong to God. Well, Matt, I'm not very good. I think God might be tired of me. One more story and we're done. So 14 years ago, about this time, I was preparing to make a decision that I knew would affect my family greatly for at least a decade. And I researched and I looked and I really was really wanted the right decision here. There's a long-term effect on my family. It was what kind of dog to buy. (laughs) It really does. So we zeroed in on a golden retriever named Chloe. We bought her as a little puppy and brought her home. Miserable. My girls at that time, I just had two Uh, two and four, always biting their bellies and they hated Chloe. She chewed up my fruit trees and killed them. Chewed up the trim on my house, puked in my truck, just a general mayhem. And my wife was like, we should get rid of this dog. At about nine months, let's just get rid of this thing. Let's cut our losses and get out of it. So I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so we take her to go hiking one Saturday. We go out to Raining Falls and we're hiking on the right-hand side, which has these cliffs on it, right? So it's myself, Carissa, Bella and Chloe. So we start hiking and Chloe's just going crazy. And I'm worried about Bella, who's only two years old. So I said, okay, hold on, sweetie. I'm gonna put Bella on my shoulders. So Carissa, Charity, and Chloe keep walking up around the corner. So I got Bella situated. And then I hear this blood curdling scream. And I'm thinking, Chloe pushed Carissa over a cliff. So I go running up there and I see Carissa and Charity and they're looking over the edge. And they're about eight feet down on this little one foot ledge with another 25, 30 foot cliff below that is Chloe trying to scratch her way back up. And there was a moment (laughs) where I just said, God's plan, let's go. (laughs) Trademarked or not. (laughs) But I didn't. We tied some sweatshirts together, tied a leash together. And I kind of shimmied over this cliff till I could get a hold of her leash and then just one arm curled this giant dog right up on it. <laughs> now, why did I do that? Because she was such a blessing to me? No, because she belonged to me. And whether I liked it or not, she was part of my family. 
and I was keeping her. Listen to me. You belong to God. And he takes care of his possessions, period. You belong to him. You might be off a cliff. You might be biting little kids. I don't know. You still belong to him. You might chewing on a fruit tree. I don't know what you're doing. You belong to God and he keeps his possessions. And listen, all this forgiveness of sins, translation from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, living in the light instead of darkness, belonging, all this comes by one thing. Do you notice what it is in the text? By faith in me. By faith in me. Forgiveness of sins. Translation from kingdom of darkness into kingdom of light. Power of Satan to power of God. Belonging, citizenship. All by one thing. Faith in me. Like, I don't even know why it's so important to God. But faith is God's love language. It's the key that unlocks everything. And it's always been that way in the Bible. Go way back to the first guy that God, his name is Abraham. He's hundred years old, no kids. Wife's 90 years old. God says, hey, look up the stars. Can you count them? No, I really can't. You'll have more kids than that. Look around you, all the land that you see. I'm gonna give it to you. He didn't own a thing. And what did Abraham do? The Bible says he believed the Hebrew there is amen. He just said, amen. All right, God, if you're gonna do that, go right ahead, right on, amen. And God was like, yeah. And guess what? Even though Abraham was up and down, God made it happen. Why? Well, Romans 4 tells us why. Abraham didn't put himself in the equation. I don't matter how old I am, how good I am, how bad I am. I actually don't matter. All that matters is what God said. And so I'm just amen in him. Amen, God, do it. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. This week, amen, God. If you read something in the Bible, a promise from God, you know what you do? You don't argue about why it can't come true for you. You know what you do? Amen. If you hear something on the radio, you're like, that is fantastic. Guess what you do? Amen, right? If God whispers something into your heart that you just think, man, that's too good to be true. What do you do? Amen. I'm telling you, that's mature faith. Amen, amen, amen. So here's what we're gonna do. Trevor's gonna come back, sing a song. You don't have to stay, you can go, I get it. There's baptisms. This is, this is maybe no better way to understand forgiveness of sins. It's like, I tell little kids all the time, it's like taking a bath. Why do you take a bath? Because my mom said I'm dirty. Right. <laughs> That's what this is. It's a bath for your soul. And you come out and you know, though my sins were like scarlet, I'm white as snow. It doesn't save you, Jesus saves you. Faith in Jesus saves you. But this is a demonstration of that, ah, oh, I belong to him. I'm forgiven by him. He'll take care of me. So you can be baptized. We do that every Sunday outside. Or perhaps you need prayer. For faith, man, I tell people this all the time. You can pray for me. You can pray for me. I'll take all the prayer in the world. 
Pray that I have faith because I'll, I'll amen it today, but guess what, Monday morning, something will happen to me. And I'll be like, oh man. Instead of, oh man, I'm like, oh man. And I wanna be an amen guy. So sometimes we just need, we need prayer. We'd love to pray for you, for healing. Pray for faith, pray for grace, pray for change in your life. Pray God's promises into you. We'll do that. Maybe just to look at you and say, your sins are forgiven. There's such power in that. You can come get prayer. Or you can enjoy a fantastic afternoon in smoke-free Southern Oregon. So Jesus, may we, may I be a people that amen you. It's your love language. Without faith, it's impossible to please you but we must come to you believing, amening you. May we be a group of people that amen you, amen your promises, amen the treasure chest, amen it. And this week, may you demonstrate your power to those that believe, freeing us from dark stuff, cleansing us and whispering into our hearts, that we belong to you because we've amened you. Go with us, we ask. We pray this in your name, amen. God bless you guys.